0: Hello and welcome to the Jew Witches podcast, a space for all things Jewish magic, mysticism, and practice. My name is Tso and I am the creator of Jew Witches, a shop, a website, and an online community. Every week I'm here to talk about my favorite parts of Judaism, especially the magical bits. From discussions of folklore and mythology to deep dives into the practices of our ancestors, I am here to talk about it all. Hello and welcome to the third recording of this episode of the Witches podcast i recorded the first episode there was nothing wrong with it until i realized there was a topic i wanted to add so i re-recorded it then those audio files were corrupted and unusable so we're here one more time we're here to discuss one of my favorite topics twilight i'm entirely kidding i do however go off the rails the tangent on twilight which is why I re-recorded it. But for the most part, we're here to talk about vampires and werewolves in Jewish mythology. I, like so many of us, had an obsessive phase of the vampires. I have read hundreds of vampire stories. I have consumed so much vampire media. And of course, I own those incredible fake vampire fangs that you got from like the nicer Halloween stores that there was a little polymer. You had to melt it down in some hot water. You put it in the individual fang. You molded it to your teeth. They like clicked in and out. Anyway, I had those. I had a whole black cloak. There was a running joke that I was a vampire because I didn't like going outside very much. And I was practically nocturnal um, for most of my teen years. So it's suffice to say, I love vampires. I've read every cheesy vampire book, And it wasn't until I was embarrassingly old that I thought to actually ask, do we have vampires in Judaism? And the answer, oh boy, oh boy, is it great. Before we start, I want to take this moment to remind you all that I do have a Patreon that you can support me on. It's usually linked in the description of these episodes, but it's just patreon.com jewishes Not only are you supporting me and making this show happen, It's also the best place to ask for podcast episodes. Someone asked if I could cover vampires, so here we are. Yes, comments are fantastic, but I truly see it the most on my Patreon, not to mention you get background content, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I do have plans to do more episodes on mythological creatures in Judaism, but I do want to hear what you want to hear about. Vampires are an extremely broad topic. There is a ton of lore and history with them, even though they didn't always go by that name. So let's talk a little bit about the word vampire to begin with. Etymologyonline.com lists vampire as a spectral being in a human body who maintains semblance of life by leaving the grave at night to suck the warm blood of the living as they sleep. Wonderful. In 1732, vampire, spelled with a Y, from the French vampire, spelled with an I, of the 18th century, or German vampire, the same word minus the E from 1732, like the English word uh, is first in the account of Hungarian vampires, probably from the Hungarian vampire, from the old church Slavonic opiri, source of the Serbian vampire, Bulgarian vapir, and Ukrainian Upir, I'm assuming. So the Slavic linguist Frank Miklosovic, I'm going to really hope for the best with that one, is said to be ultimately the source from the Kazan Tatar Ubir, which meant which, though Max Vasmer, an expert on linguistics in this area, says it's phonetically doubtful. So we see kind of a tracing from French and German to, and Old English to Hungarian to Church Slavonic to Serbian. I. Uh, Backwards to the Kazan Tatar word. Essentially, the term we know, vampire, was not around until at least the 1700s. Before and after that, these creatures went by different names, especially based on the country they are from. It is also, of course, important to recognize that just because we in the modern day look back and use these terms does not mean that the people who created and believed in these mythologies, use them. It is especially important as we have a very specific image of what a vampire looks like in our mind. For some, it's Dracula. For others, it's Edward. (laughs) So when did the traditional version of the vampire get invented? Or more accurately, when was it really codified? We can blame John Polidori's 1819 publication of The Vampire, which One, it's both a Y and fun fact, he wrote it in the same little writing competition that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein for, which is fantastic to me. You can blame two huge cultural phenomena, hundreds of incredible works of literature, music, cinema, and of course, spirit Halloween costumes on this writing competition between friends. Frankenstein and vampires right there next to each other. We then obviously also have Bram Stoker's Dracula which is considered the quintessential vampire novel after Twilight. But I do want to specifically focus on Jewish vampires because you can find most of this stuff on Wikipedia and you literally just search vampire. But it's a little bit more difficult to find discussions of Jewish vampires unless you know where to look. And even then, you're going to through a bunch of different sources. I will admittedly be focusing heavily on Ashkenazi perceptions of vampires because for the most part, they are a largely Eastern European and also Western European phenomena. While some of the mythos is also Sephardic, there is less information regarding Mizrahi and other movements and their mythology there. So if you have any sources there, please send it my way and I can come back and edit it or put in the podcast notes. I did search for it, but I was not very successful. We also have to acknowledge that just like in my last episodes on the witch craze and the term witch in general, we are using a modern terminology that did not exist at the time. They didn't exist. You will also find that these terms are used interchangeably with other ones, and it kind of adds to the lore of it. I also want to get out of the way that Lilith is often identified as a vampire. She isn't. She's a shade or a demon, um, and she has been identified as such since her inception. Now, could she be labeled as vampiric or vampiric uh, to denote her affinity for eating children and drinking their blood? And You know? Yeah. But she's not a vampire. Um, I also have an entire episode dedicated to her coming, but the script is over 40 pages long and I am not even a quarter of the way done with it yet. I promise I will get to it. I promise. Uh, Saul Epstein and Sarah Libby Robinson, author of the soul, evil spirits and the undead vampires, death and burial and Jewish folklore and law, write That in his work vampires, burial, and death, Paul Barber examines the vampire and its related folklore from the perspectives of anthropology, sociology, and forensic science. According to Barber, vampire lore helps cultures explain issues of disease, death, and decomposition. As he comments from antiquity, people's instinct that has been to blame death on the dead. Elon Gilad, who wrote for Haaretz, identified three sources for vampires in Judaism, saying, "To quote, the first references to vampires in Judaism are in the three Hebrew books written in the Middle Ages: Midrash the Agadic commentary on the Book of Samuel; Sefer Hasidim, an important book on the laws, customs, and traditions of German Jew- Jewry at the Jewry Jewry, that's a word. Say that four times fast. At the turn of the 13th century, and the related book Sefer Haorkeia. But there are a few more that I've come across." Now, again, Saul Epstein and Sarah Libby Robinson mentioned, to quote, an anonymous storyteller found in a work by the 16th century Rabbi David Benz uh, Solomon Ibn Abi Zimra, Radbaz, later republished in a book of customs and traditions in 1869, that offers the cautionary tale of what happens to be a distinctly Jewish vampire. According to Epstein and Robinson, Radbaz was born in Spain around 1479. His family left Spain when the Jews were expelled in 1492 and first moved to Morocco, then Safed. By 1514, he moved to Egypt, where he was appointed the Av Din, chief justice of the rabbinic court of Cairo, and then the city's chief rabbi. He served there for over 40 years. He had a collection of nearly 3,000 legal responsa that dealt with a wide range of issues. He also wrote several Talmudic commentaries, a work on the methodology of the Talmud, and some important liturgical pieces. He was also widely recognized as one of the preeminent scholars of Kabbalah, writing, among other works, a Kabbalistic interpretation of the Hebrew alphabet and another of the Song of Songs. The vampire story is about the body of an old woman that was left unburied and unguarded for three entire days. During this liminal period, this body seems to have been possessed by a vampire-like demon. After she was finally interred, the storyteller describes that she would, have, she would appear to residents of her neighborhood, who shortly after would die. After just 40 days, the death toll had climbed into the hundreds. Now, let's do a dramatic reading of the actual story. Listen, my son, to the story of an old woman who lived to be nearly 100 years old. The residents of her village considered her stingy towards the poor, and she was suspected of causing bad things to occur all her life. She had sons, daughters, sons-in-law, and daughters-in-law, but she did not live with any of them. She rather lived alone, although her children provided for her, in addition to traveling and trading for their business purposes. She died while her sons were away on business, and her death remained unknown for three days. When her sons came to her house, they found her lying dead in the middle of her house, her mouth open, her hands and legs bent, her tongue hanging out of her mouth, and her eyes open. After they had buried her, every night she would visit those who were ill. They were awake, but they imagined they saw her in their waking imagination, or she would call to them or hit them. Within seven days, they would die. After 40 days, more than 200 people had died, and all testified that she had called out to them in their imagination and hit them. The deaths, plagues, and her appearance did not stop until they burned her corpse. After 15 days after her death, when they opened her casket, they found that she had half-swallowed her burial hat. Her headdress was unrecognizable, save for its strings, and blood was flowing from her mouth and eyes. 10 out of 10. Love that story. Um dramatic, impressive, frightening. It ticks all the boxes. The only thing it's missing is a dramatic romance. Now, this is written in a book about Jewish burial, because like I said in the last episodes, Jews have one opinion on dead bodies, and that's that dead bodies belong in the ground. Uh, But here, like in some other stories, we don't hear the term vampire by name, because this story literally predates the terminology. But there were other terms that we had. Now, there are a couple main terms you can find. Estri and aluka are the main ones, but we will cover a few more. Now, the modern word for vampire in Hebrew is arpad, which comes from the Aramaic word for bat, which I think is adorable. So let's just start with aluka. This means horse leech, uh, and it was a term for vampire. The horse leech is frankly, disgusting. It's, it's not its fault, but I Googled it and it is so gross looking. I'm so sorry. I, I truly, it's not their fault and I feel guilty for saying it, but I, I nearly gagged looking at some of the pictures of a horse leech. Um, the reason they're named a horse leech is they used to be a belief that they suck the blood from the throats of animals. But apparently in my loads of Googling, they actually only eat larvae and smaller creatures. So they, they can't Puncture the skin of mammals? Apparently? Based on my Googling, I could be wrong. Biting the throats of animals that really gave them the name. It's also mentioned as a place name in the Legends of the Jews, 2 4. To quote, Moses saw the place called Aluka, where sinners were suspended by their feet, their heads downwards, and their bodies covered with black worms, each 500 parasangs long. They lamented and cried, Woe unto us for the punishment of hell, give us death that we may die. Nasarjil explained, these are the sinners that swore falsely, profaned the Sabbath and the holy days, despised the sages, called their neighbors by unseemly nicknames, wronged the orphan and the widow, and bore false witness. Therefore, God delivered them to these worms. Now, one love the imagery, hanging upside down like bats, very vampiry. The worms—I'm assuming the black worms—are also just leeches, which makes sense. Jews love to name places after things, but I will say. That punishment for a mean nickname for your neighbor, it's impressive. It's also mentioned in Proverbs 30.15, Zepharia translated as such, the leech, i.e. the grave, has two daughters, Paradise and Gehennaam, each saying, give me, give me. There are three that are never sated and a fourth that never says enough. Which is really interesting. One, they're calling the Aluka the grave, and they're naming two separate afterlife experiences as siblings, as daughters. Moving on, despite the fact they have very different names, as far as I could find, Estris and Aluca are just the same creatures with different names, as in we address them with different terminology at different times. If we look at the etymology of Estri, we see the Latin Stria, which then becomes the Greek Strix, which is passed into the Old French, it became entrenched in Ashkenazi culture as Estries, but also they are referred to as stria or strix, depending on the origin of the myth or the folktale. They were believed to be women with long hair, often red. It was said that they could fly when their hair was unbound, so keeping it tied up was important for surviving one's attack. They were also believed to be able to change forms with an affinity for bird shapes like their surrounding counterparts. We often see birds heavily associated with demonic women witches, anything like that, especially owls too. Estries were given sort of an elusive power. Jews often used whatever terminology worked, estry, witch, demon, spirit. So even Joshua Trachtenberg, who wrote Jewish Magic and Superstition, a studying folk religion, was unsure of what they were really, sources cited them as simultaneously human and demonic. Whether or not they were partially human is debated, with some sources believing they were demons, capable of changing into human form. Others believing they were demons simply possessing human form, while others were like, they're totally human with human souls. They never really come to a solid conclusion, according to Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis. But what we do know is they spent the majority of their time in human form, and they were always women. They were exclusively women, and they prefer to eat children, but to quote, did not disdain at times to include grown-ups in her diet. So they eat children, but they will also eat adults, and consume drink their blood. But we can read about them in depth in Sefer Hasidim. There were women that are called estri. They were created at sunset before the first Shabbat before creation. As a result of this, they were able to change form. There was one woman who has an estri, and she was very sick, and there were two women with her at night. One was sleeping and one was awake. And the sick woman stood up and loosened her hair, and she was about to fly and suck the blood of the sleeping woman. And the woman who was awake screamed and woke her friend, and they grabbed the sick estri, and after this she slept. If, and, moreover, if she had been able to grab the other woman, then she, the Estry, would have lived. Since she was not able to hurt the other woman, the estri died, because she needs to drink the blood of living flesh. The same is true of the werewolf. And since the estri needs to loosen her hair before they fly, and one must adjure her to come with her hair bound so she cannot go anywhere without permission. And if an estri is injured or seen by someone, she cannot live unless she, she eats of the bread and the salt of the one who struck her. Then her soul returned will be re, will return to the way it was before. So what we learn here is, one, women. Two, they have souls. There is another story in the Sefer Hasidim. Here we see the same story, except the woman is referred to as Estriah. There's another story, from the, again, from the Sefer Hasidim. There was a non-Jewish woman who was suspected of being an Estri, and she would attack people. She appeared to a Jew as a cat, and he hit her. The next day, she asked him to give her some of his bread and salt, and he wanted to give it to him. He wanted to give it to her. An old man said to him, Be not overly righteous, where one has an obligation to others, one must not exhibit excessive piety. For if she lives, she will harm people. Thus the Holy One, blessed be he, cre- created her for you as a test, just as he created Amalek for Saul and punished him for letting him live. It continues in Siman 1467. There was a woman who was an estri, but she allowed her victim to take from her bread and salt. In such case, one should have mercy on her. We see this confirmation that if someone were to harm an estri a vampire, they would have to give the estuary bread and salt. We know that bread and salt have very powerful ritualistic meaning and symbolic meaning in Judaism. Salt is protection. It is a massively important part of Judaism. We know that a meal is not a meal unless it's salted. It is a means of koshering, of making kosher, of purifying, of cleansing. It also represents prosperity. And bread is sustenance. It's a means of sustaining oneself and you can see that they're giving bread and salt to this kind of creature would one heal them but also be horrible for the person who gave the estri their bread and salt not only would be out of a meal but the vampire would live killing them was not actually supposed to be that difficult it was actually what you had to do once they were dead after killing an estuary you had to pack their mouths full of dirt and salt after killing them Or they had come back after death. So in the Sefer Harokia, it says, If it is open, it is clear that she will harm again a year after she dies. And he should fill her mouth with an ample amount of earth so she will harm no more. Estries were not believed to be harmed by religious symbolism, like traditional vampires by a cross. Nor were they harmed by entering consecrated ground, like a synagogue or a church, like we see with a lot of modern vampires. In fact, there are stories of estries entering synagogues, asking for blessings and prayers. It is said that anyone who blesses them is cursed. So to reiterate, if an estuary is harmed, they could be healed by eating the salt and bread of the person who harmed them, as long as it was given willingly. And if the harmed while in their monstrous form, they must have the salt or bread. They're assailant or they'll die. Now, I'm going to focus on werewolves in a little bit, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that they weren't always in such violently different categories. Back in the Sifa Hasidim, it is said that these women are called estries, mares, or werewolves. Uh, Joshua Trachtenberg amends it to include Broxa as well, which, and I promise we'll talk about the werewolf thing later because I know it. I mentioned it a little bit ago, but let's talk about mares. Now, I'm not entirely certain why mares were involved. And yes, it's spelled like the female horse. As Joshua Trachtenberg writes that, according to one source, the mares are creatures which consort in the forest in groups of nine. If there were 10 of them, Satan would seize the 10th. They do no harm to humans. Now, in more authentic versions, however, is that is that the mare is a being which rests upon the man while he sleeps and deprives him of his power of speech by grasping his tongue and his lips and choking off his breath so that he cries out fitfully, it is the mare which is responsible for nightmares. Here we have the word incorporated in our own speech and folklore. In French, the phenomenon is known as the cauchemar. French is not my language. We're going to move on. Point is, not exactly sure why they're included there, as they don't seem to have the same thing. But Joshua Trochnbega further reminds us of a very important concept in regards to how Jews believe in creatures like vampires and werewolves. I've gone over this before, but I feel it's kind of important to discuss here. The realms were highly discussed by the Ramban Nachmanides. There is the divine realm of God, which is the divine. Then there's the spiritual, demons, angels, ghosts, spirits, vampires. And then there is the natural, humans earth, laws like gravity and physics, etc. If it's a sliding scale, I'd say that golems are the nearest to the natural of the spiritual realm, and angels are the nearest to the divine of the spiritual. So the spiritual realm is responsible for vampires, werewolves, dibukim, which we've already covered in case you haven't listened to it yet. So when we're talking about this, people often go, how can Jews believe in these kind of things? It's, It's easy. We've always done it. Now we can move on to the next term, broxa. I haven't really mentioned it yet other than literally saying the name. And the reason I haven't is that there is not that much literature I can find on it. Tuckenbia conflates with Estris in his own writing, which is the primary text I could find on it. If you Google it, you're probably going to be bombarded with Tumblr posts with no actual source on the broxa. According to Teresa Bain, the author of the Encyclopedia of Vampire Mythology, the broxa is a bird-like creature that sucks goats for their milk. It has been speculated over time that the Broxa bird involved into the Broxa vampire witch of medieval Portugal. Now, this is the source that Wikipedia uses when you search Broxa, but I have not been able to find any other text on this. When I went to the actual Encyclopedia of Empiric Mythology, they cited Joshua Trockenberg, but I have his book open and I could not find anything on that. Now, Tachenbeg also specifies that you do have to stub a Braxa's mouth with earth in the same way as an estuary, which kind of furthers the idea that Aluka, estuary, and Broxa are all pretty much talking about the same creature in different areas. Different places, same creature, different name. So, why don't people know about Jewish vampires? Well, for a long time, Jews were associated with vampires. In fact, there is still a ton of anti Semitic imagery that is based on the ideas that Jews were. Well, blood sucking creatures like blood libel, which I promise I will do an episode on soon. Some of you have expressed interest. Now, the famous vampire film Nosferatu is heavily criticized for its deeply anti-Semitic overtones. I'm not they're not undertones. Um, And I want to address the fact that some folks have claimed it can't be anti-Semitic because one, there were Jewish actors and two, the director was gay. Terrible arguments that don't really negate the fact that there are a lot of anti-semitic undertones in it in peter dan's article entitled how vampires became jewish he describes how there really isn't a direct jews equals vampire thing because again the terminology didn't exist at the time but you can see this conflation of anti-semitism and mythology that allowed traditional anti-semitic rhetoric to be mushed in with folk tales that would eventually be codified under the name of vampire And if you're interested in learning about some of the wild anti-Semitic mythology propagated across Europe, you should probably listen to my episode on the witch craze. But again, a lot of the mythology that would eventually become vampires was for centuries very much associated with Jews. So we're nearing the end of the vampire tale, but I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about another religion and vampires because I want to, and I really need an excuse to talk about it. Most of you know that I love studying religions. Obviously, I talk about Judaism all the time, but I'm interested in other ones. And comparative religion is fascinating. One of the religions that I've had a particularly focus on for a while is Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. Now, unless you already know, you're like, what does vampires have to do with Mormonism? Oh my God, it's Twilight. The answer is Twilight. Stephanie Meyer, the author of Twilight, is Mormon. And I could do an entire episode on this. And if you're interested, let me know because I can talk about it forever, but I'm only going to talk a little bit. So if you're not interested, I promise not too long. Stephanie Meyer's Mormonism impacted so much of the story and how we view those vampires. There's a reason they're not exactly the same as like Dracula and Nosferatu this is actually the entire reason I re recorded this episode because I came across a TikToker, Julia Goes Texas, who is raised Mormon and talks about Mormonism in Twilight. And their clip explains better than I ever could how Mormon doctrine has impacted the books and the movies and how they view vampires.
1: Welcome back to another Mormonism in Twilight. Let's talk about the Cullen family and the vampires, specifically the vampires of the Cullen family. They kind of represent, again specifically the Cullen, and from Bella's point of view, a perfected being. Edward, particularly, is described as a Mormon version of an angel, not a biblical angel, because those are f- scary. Why do you think they say fear not? Like, that's the first word that comes out of their mouth. They've got lots of eyes and they're terrifying. But in Mormonism, we have descriptions of angels who were once human, like Moroni, Nephi, Peter, Paul, etc. So you have this godlike being in a perfected white body that sparkles. That's Mormonism in a nutshell. Your goal in Mormonism is to be good in this life, do all the things, die, become perfect and, and white, and become a god. That's what the vampire
0: So now, as fascinating as that is, I am going to move on from Twilight um, because there's so much to unpack there. Truly, I can do an entire episode on it. But we are going to stay on the Twilight theme for just a second more because we're going to talk about werewolves and shapeshifters. If you read or watched the movies... You know that in the end, it turns out that the werewolves weren't actually true werewolves. They weren't, quote unquote, children of the moon. Um, And Twilight did not explore that revelation whatsoever. But we will, because it's similar in Judaism, kind of, enough for me to make this as a good transition. So we know that werewolves were mentioned for estuaries before, because estuaries could change their shape. Cats, you know, birds, they did it all. In the Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism, Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis notes that werewolves were most often mentioned in the medieval writings as part of a complex of witches-slash-vampires-slash-shape-changing traditions, so estries, broxa, etc. But Joshua Trachenberg states that the werewolf is a sorcerer or a demon which inhabits the earth in a man's form, but which, at will, assumes the shape of a wolf and attacks and consumes men. Like his feminine counterpart, the estry, he requires human blood in his diet. Here we see this very interesting gendered aspect of vampires being feminine while werewolves were masculine. We also see that in almost all werewolf stories in Judaism, they are with men. We can start in the Torah in Genesis 49, Parashat Vayech. Jacob is blessing, well, more prophesizing regarding his sons. He finally gets to Benjamin and he says, Benjamin is a predatory wolf. In the morning, he consumes the foe, and in the evening, he divides the spoil. Can we interpret it as Benjamin just not being his favorite son? Yeah, of course. But Rabbi Ephraim ben Shimshon, one of the Tosafists' early commenters on the Talmud, literally cried wolf. And by that, I mean he cried werewolf. He said, Benjamin was a predatory wolf, sometimes preying upon people. When it was time for him to change into a wolf, as it says, Benjamin is a predatory wolf as long as he was with his father, he could rely upon a physician. And in that merit, he did not change into a wolf. And that's as it says, and he shall leave his father and die. Genesis forty four twenty two. Namely, that when he separates from his father and turns into a wolf with travelers, whoever finds him will kill him. So Benjamin transforms into a wolf, but because there's a physician there, he somehow they prevent him from transforming into a wolf. But what they're worried about is now that his father is dead, he won't have that physician to rely on. And when travelers see him be a werewolf, they'll kill him. So it's not that he turns into a wolf that they're concerned about. They're more so concerned that people will kill him. Now, according to Esther Sachs in their article, What's So Jewish About Werewolves? They explain that this worry is a very common thread through a lot of Yiddish folktales. To quote, German fairy tales warn children not to go into the woods, lest they be snatched. Yiddish folktales warned readers not to go into the woods, lest they be accused of snatching children and baking them into matzah. This reminds me of when I took a course specifically focusing on folktales and fairy tales and how we see the role they play in culture. For Jews who are so very often the scapegoats, a lot of our stories warn us that we can so easily become the prey we can so easily become the hunted. And that doesn't mean there aren't beautiful stories I'm about to tell a great one, but it is very sad to me that so many of these are cautionary, not that we will get hurt because we do something wrong, but that we will be hurt because we are perceived as the wrongdoers. Now one of my favorite werewolf stories is that of the werewolf and the balalashimtov. The Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Israel ben elezer is one of the fa- is seen as the father of Hasidism and was an incredible mystic, rabbi, leader, and, and teacher. He's... In this story, he is such a good and kind child that he plays in the world, in the forest, in nature, singing songs, learning the languages of the animals, teaching kindness as this tiny child. The other children of the village come with him, and they lead. He leads with such goodness that Hashem. Uh, you know, looks down and even the Mashiach wakes and says, Is it my time? So so Satan seeps seeks to stop them so that they don't bring around the Mashiach the coming of the Mashiach. So hasatan looks down into the earth and sees a werewolf. While he sleeps, he turns the werewolf's heart to hate. So while the Baal Shem Tov and his little ragtag team of friends go out to play and sing in nature, they are approached by this terrifying werewolf. Do not fear, he said to them. Whatever happens, remember the name of God and stand fast. And so it was, as they reached the edge of the forest, and the monster appeared. Immense, shoulders stretching from horizon to horizon, smoke and fire coming from its mouth and nose, creating dark clouds blotted out the sun. The children shook with fright, but they did not run. And Israel marched forth towards the beast, not stopping until he had entered into the very being of the monster, until he reached the heart of evil. Then Israel reached forth and took that black heart, filled with all that envy and cruelty of the world, and placed it in his hand. When it lay in the boy's palm, the heart quivered like a bird with a broken wing. Poor wounded beast, there it was. Israel felt its pain and understood that all the darkness of the heart came from fear and self-loathing. Israel pitied that heart and took it and laid it upon the earth, which opened wide, and the heart fell deep deep into the forgiving world. Then Israel led the children to school. That story is absolutely haunting. So we're going to take a break. I'm going to go get some water and you're going to listen to an ad and when we come back, we're going to talk some more werewolves. All right, we're back. In his book, Sacred Monsters, Dr. Nathan Slifkin mentions quite a few different stories about werewolves, Rabbi Yehuda uh, Chasid describing people turning into animals, including wolves. In the Sefer Chasidim, the the Tosafist Rabbi Moshe Taku describing people who turn into rabbits or hares. And the scripture where King Nebuchadnezzar, that word, always trips me up, uh, turns into an animal. And what we've already talked about with it, which is Rabbi Ephraim Ben Shemshom, talking about Benjamin. They also go a little bit more in depth here. There is a type of wolf that is called the Lupgaru which is a person that changes into a wolf. When it changes into a wolf, his feet emerge from between his shoulders. So too with Benjamin. He dwells between the shoulders, 33, 12, Deuteronomy. The solution for dealing with this wolf is that when it enters a house and a person is frightened by it, he should take a firebrand and thrust it around and he will not be harmed. So they do in the temple each day, they would throw the ashes by the altar as it is written, and you shall place it by the altar, Leviticus 6, 3. And so is the norm with this person whose offspring turn into wolves, for the wolf is born with teeth, which indicates that it is out to consume the world. Another explanation, a wolf is born with teeth, to show just as this is unusual, so too he will be different from other people. Likewise, Benjamin destroyed, literally ate, his mother, who died on his accord, as it is written, and it was as her soul left her, as she was dying, that she called his name the son of my affliction. Then Oni, Genesis 35, 18. Wow, that is impressive. The feet from between his shoulders is really interesting, specifically. But what about more modern media? Because we all love the Torah, but what about something closer to now? In H. Levick's 1920s poem, The Wolf, it features a harrowing and heartbreaking tale, honestly. It's a narrative poem of 731 verses and seven episodes. The protagonist is a rabbi, the only one left after a violent pogrom that left his shtetl in ruins, as the only survivor he transforms into a werewolf. Tragically, and in a very Jewish turn, he then begins to terrorize the Jews who return and attempt to rebuild the shtetl. It is a stark and deeply striking commentary on the internalization of violence against Jews and anti-Semitism in the early 1900s. If you're into poetry and you want to read it, you can find the original German, Der Wolf, A Chronique, or in English, The Wolf, A Chronicle, by H. Leivik, which is actually apparently a pseudonym for Leivik Halpern, um, 1888 to 1962. There are also some pretty famous pop culture Jewish werewolves. uh, The Wolfman, 1941, written by Kurt Siodmak, who was Jewish. An American Werewolf in London, 1981, is another great example. Yes, writer John Landis was Jewish, but To quote from Wikipedia, Rolling Stone's Joshua Rothkopf, writing on the 35th anniversary of the film's release, called An American Werewolf in London an allegory of exoticized Jewishness. This is embodied by the character of David and his growing awareness of his, quote, otherness as a werewolf alongside his outsider status as a Jewish American in England, hiding a secret deep within one's body, strange urges, xenophobic glances, accusatory feelings of guilt. David's condition already has a name, and this won't be the first film in which Jewish otherness is made monstrous. Wonderful quote. Jewish werewolves are clearly a thing, but just like in Twilight, they aren't always the turn with the moon kind of thing. I think here we're seeing a very important discussion how we like to put things in modern, shiny boxes. Vampires have to be one thing. Old, white, pale men. Can't go out in the sun. Usually you have some sort of Eastern European accent fangs, drinking blood. Werewolves are their own thing. With the moon, howl at the moon, must become a wolf involuntarily. Um, and it's just not historically accurate when we give ourselves these tiny, tiny boxes to work with. And I know if someone tells me how many times I mentioned twirl in this episode, I'd be very grateful. The number of times I've said the word, probably shocking. So those are Jewish werewolves. We oft, We are seeing here the same example that they are not just moon children, right? Howling at the moon. The moon is what turns them. A lot of them have this voluntary thing, but there is some discussion of nighttime with Benjamin turning at night, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's it, y'all. Werewolves. Before I get to sources, I do want to say thank you to I eight B four. Oh my god, I just realized saying it out loud. Um, it's I eight before. I ate before. I want to thank you for the lovely review you left on Apple Podcasts. I promise I read every single re- review you all leave there. Plus, reviews, downloads, and subscriptions are hugely helpful for boosting the podcast. So make sure you do. You can follow me on all your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. You can stay up to date with me on Instagram at Jewitches, Twitter at the Jewiches, or you can sign up for emails on my website at Jewitches.com slash subscribe. I promise I only send five emails a month at most. And it's not because I have restraint. It's because I only pay to send five at most. So let's move on to sources. We have the Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism by Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis. We have Jewish Magic and Superstition, A Study in Folk Religion by Joshua Trachenberg. We have Sacred Monsters by Do- Dr. Nathan Slifkin. We have Etymology Online. We have Saul Epstein and Sarah Libby Robinson, The Soul, Evil Spirits, and the Undead, Vampires, Death, and Burial, and Jewish Folklore and Law which you can find on JSTOR for free in the pre-nature critical and historical studies on the pre-natural preternatural, sorry, uh, juicy.com Jewish arts and culture. What's Jewish werewolves, Jewish monster hunter, haunting.com. Benjamin is a predatory wolf. Then we have an article from Keeves Van Hage, K E E S V A N H A G E.wordpress.com. We have HasidicStories.com under the Baal Shem and the Werewolf. Thank you all so much for listening. All the sources will be linked in the description of this episode. And thank you so much to Julia Goes Texas for allowing me to use their TikTok in this. All right. I will see you all next time.